Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Should we literally declare war on the next pandemic to try to cure some of the ills from the past? If the government isn't going to fix what went wrong, we have to do it ourselves, says the guest of today's podcast, renowned cardiologist, Dr. William O'Neill. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There are so many smart people weighing in on what went wrong with the pandemic and the government's handling of it and the medical establishment's handling of it. We're not hearing all of those voices on, I guess, what you would consider mainstream sources. Some of them were speaking out all along, and I interviewed a lot of them for this podcast and for my TV program, Full Measure. Today, we're going to revisit with someone I spoke to during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, when he was investigating as part of his job the potential effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine as a preventive measure for COVID-19. He'll talk in this podcast about how that effort got derailed due to politics, not science. Dr. William O'Neill is a pioneer in the world of interventional cardiology and structural heart disease. He's a pioneer in the use of angioplasty as it applies to the heart When I first met him, he was director of the Center for Structural Heart Disease at Henry Ford Health System. He's still an emeritus affiliated with the same system. He'll talk about some of his bona fides in just a moment. But he has some really important things to say and I think some fearless reflections on what the government and the system did so wrong during COVID. And I think it's important to recognize, though very sad to say, that there's not going to be any meaningful accountability or restructuring to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes, to make sure that the government doesn't put out the same sort of disinformation. Nobody's been held accountable. Even some of CDC's staunchest supporters had agreed that that agency needs to be rebuilt from the bottom up. Some in Congress promised to do so, but virtually nothing has happened except they've been promised a greater budget going into the next year. So if there is to be change, Dr. O'Neill thinks, as do I'm sure many others, it has to somehow come from us, more from the bottom up, if our leaders aren't going to institute change on their own. He has some ideas for what we ought to do, some very unique ideas that he's going to express to us today. Here is Dr. William O'Neill. Sorry, I'm the emeritus director of the Structural Heart uh, Center at Henry Ford Hospital. Previously, I served as the dean of research at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And prior to that, I was the head of cardiology at William Beaumont Hospital for 17 years. We're going to talk today a bit about some of the things you've observed or some of the things you've learned in light of this COVID pandemic and the way things were handled. But before we get to that, can you give me a little bit about your background? You're quite the esteemed I guess you're a cardiologist, right? Right, right. If you people want to Google your name and look you up, they'll find a, a nice history there, Dr. O'Neill, O apostrophe N-E-I-L-L. But go right. ahead and tell us a little bit. Well, thank you, uh, Cheryl. I've been privileged to be involved with cardiology and cardiac research for almost 40 years. Uh, I, I started the initial uh, 
uh, research into using balloon angioplasty to open up uh, blocked arteries in patients that were having heart attack. And about 20 years of research from 1980 to 2000 actually led to the widespread adoption of angioplasty as a preferred treatment of heart attack. In fact, around the world, angioplasty is the dominant way of pe people that treat heart attacks based on the studies that we did in the 90s. Uh, I also am, am involved with a, something called structural heart, which is valve therapy. I did the first uh, TAVR valve, uh, fixing a diseased aortic valves without surgery at William Beaumont Hospital in 2005. And I've been involved with uh, treating emergency uh, heart attacks with massive uh, uh, heart failure called cardiogenic shock. I did the first study in cardiogenic shock in 1987. And I've been studying this, and now I'm the uh, the co-principal investigator for the first major uh, randomized trial of cardiogenic shock that's going to be done in America in the last 25 years. So I've been wow. really intimately involved with clinical research, and in particular involved with randomized clinical trials. Well, we're going to talk about some larger policy issues, but before we get into that, I wondered if, as a heart doctor, have you made some observations in the wake of COVID slash COVID vaccines, both of them, I, is, I'm under the impression, can cause heart effects. Yeah, it's... But are uh, you it, seeing any changes or differences in patients? No, we've, we've seen patients that have uh, side effects, and those side effects are reported to the vaccine adverse reporting or VAR system to the FDA, and the numbers of, of reports of adverse consequences from COVID are very large. Uh, they haven't been very well studied, but the reports are, are certainly far greater than they were for the flu vaccine, for instance. And we have seen patients that have had myocarditis as a result of COVID vaccines. But they get, do people get that also from COVID? Is it a complication of either thing, the vaccine or the disease? Well, the, the COVID involvement is at the very end stage of the disease when patients develop this, uh, this enormous immune response where the whole body has this sort of called cytokine storm, and it does directly involve the heart and causes massive uh, heart irritability and is the cause of death of some of the patients. But that, that's at the very, very end stage of COVID. It doesn't happen early on, and it doesn't sort of heal and go away. For the vaccine patients, does it happen... No earlier in the process? Yeah. Like, do yeah. they have a heart attack? Is that the first sign or are they getting just sort of small damage along the way? No, it's, it's small damage. It's myocarditis. Uh, they found some some patients that have had myocarditis as a, as a result of the vaccine, and that's an inflammation of the heart muscle. It can present with chest pain. It can present with arrhythmias. We don't really know whether or not it causes sudden cardiac death. Interesting. Well, in terms of looking at sort of a look back at what we know so far after, I think, what was a disastrous response to COVID, even after the billions we spent preparing for a pandemic and funding for this eventuality that everybody said would happen. Um, what are some of your thoughts that got you interested in what was going on and how we were responding to it? Right, well, early in 2019, when we first heard that this epidemic was coming to the U.S., our hospital leaders wanted to try to start preparing. Uh, we'd heard that there are a lot of patients that required ventilators in China, so we we're kind of gearing up for that. And at, at peak, uh, when we were involved, we had over 180 patients that were actually on ventilators in the hospital, and we almost kind of broke capacity. So New York and Detroit were the two cities that were the hardest hit. 
And as a result of that, uh, they asked me, our leaders asked me to organize a research response. And so I got a group of people from cardiology, from infectious disease, uh, from other disciplines, from pulmonary, to kind of come together and try to see if we could come up with an organized plan uh, for studying the, the disease since it was happening right in front of us, and also to try to see if we could mount some kind of a response for it. So we organized um, a research endeavor, but we had real difficulty funding it. And uh, that was part of our problems and our concerns was that the way that people were conducting research is based on old-fashioned uh, NIH-type rules where you have a, where you kind of have the leisure to do a, try to write up a study, submit it for grant funding, and then have the grant funding occur a year later. And the whole thing was really disorganized. When the NIH first started doing their research, they went to their old buddies. So they went to academic hospitals. Um, here in Michigan, they went to the University of Michigan, who had no COVID patients, when we were inundated with COVID patients, and they didn't even talk to us. So the whole thing is, is kind of all the research response, which has to be one of the first lines of defense for our patients, is to understand the, to understand the disease and see if you can figure out how to treat it. And that was just really very, very poorly organized. It was sort of a top-down dictated from the NIH. And uh, there was no pharmaceutical grant because there was no therapy available. Uh, the one drug that we studied was hydroxychloroquine. And we thought that we had a very good response here at Henry Ford Hospital. But um, there was no funding for it. The, the pill cost 40 cents a pill. Uh, again, as an example, hydroxychloroquine has been approved in the United States for over 70 years, is one of the few drugs that's approved during pregnancy, and there's absolutely no side effects from it. But because of the politics, somehow it became a Republican drug, and the media and everywhere were bound to determine to prove that it was dangerous. And, and that really kind of was, was really harmful for our uh, scientific process to try to quickly find cure for the disease during this emergency pandemic. To what do you attribute these flaws? First of all, that the most obvious or one of the most obvious places where funding could have and should have gone for research was like a hospital like yours, but you didn't get right. it. And that the government didn't seem interested. In fact, in some respects, interested in funding, they seemed interested in stopping studies about things that could have, that, that many clinicians who were treating patients in the field thought was proving to be helpful to their patients, like, like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. How yeah. do we explain the system that's that broken, that that's what happens? Well, I, I think that we have to get the politics out of it. And as I suggested to you before, I think that we have to kind of treat this as a war. It's, it's not the Nazis, or it's not the Japanese that are attacking us, it's a virus. And how do you respond to that? Because, you know, more people died of COVID in the United States than either World War I or World War II combined. So uh, it, it is a life-threatening uh, problem for our population. And we have to come up with better ways of organizing a response very early. What we crucially need is early data that's systematic and that is comprehensive and that it's accurate. When we first started uh, looking at COVID, uh, we were concerned that it was going to affect kids, and it didn't. And relatively quickly, that data became became important, uh, but people kind of ignored that for whatever reason to keep the, the schools closed. Um, we knew that it didn't affect young kids, young young adults. It was 
that young adults were not in our hospital. The people that were in our hospital, unfortunately, were minorities and were very overweight. And that combination really was was lethal, but that really was never established. And, and people, I don't recall anyone sort of saying that one of the biggest risk factors for severe COVID was morbid obesity. And that was true. But nobody, nobody would address that. So having accurate information early on will help. But I think it has to be more fundamental, Cheryl. I think that there has to be some sort of a national uh, uh, response. And what I would suggest is having Congress declare war on the next pandemic virus so that we can organize a response. And yes, we may need to abridge some civil rights, but it's only in a time-limited fashion. And it's only because of the response of the Congress uh, that has the power to declare war. And so I think if you look at it that way, then I think we can do a lot of things that may, uh, in the short term, abridge people's rights, but in the long term, be helpful for the whole population. And well, uh, by that, Let's, I, let's mm-hmm. dig into that more in just a moment, be, but sure. before we move on to that, um, the whole notion that, you, as you say, primarily the worst affected were obese people. I certainly heard that early on, but it seemed as though there was a concerted effort to make everybody think they were going to die, you know, that, right. that children were going to die, that healthy young people were going to die. And in fact, for a book I'm, that will be published next year that I was researching called Follow the Science, Right. The misinformation CDC put out there, and this is in the record now, it's been, some of this has been tracked in scholarly articles. There were something like eight major data mistakes that they perpetuated, uncorrected even after told about it, that all exaggerate, greatly exaggerated the risk to children as a result yep. of, you know, that, that was how, the mistakes never went the other way saying, you know, oh, this is an error, but it understated the risks. It always made it look far worse for children. And a lot of this stuff came out just ahead of the approval they sought to give the shots to children. It starts right. to look like this was a very organized thing. But yeah, a subset of that, comment on that, and then I'll give you part two. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is uh, unadulterated fear-mongering, okay? And it's fear-mongering so that they could drive people to get the vaccine. Get the vaccine or you'll die. And, and the second round of COVID supposedly was the, was an epidemic of the unvaccinated. Well, that was patently wrong. That was false. And that's part of the problem is that we need to get comprehensive, accurate information out to the healthcare providers in a timely fashion. And we just didn't have that. I still don't know, Cheryl, whether or not COVID is any worse than the flu, because we don't have accurate uh, case mortality rates and in the different populations, it's, it's really clear that, that young adults don't have this problem. In the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918, the young people actually were sp- specifically hit. The young soldiers were devastated. It, it, it devastated all those people that were going to World War, World War I from the U.S. to Europe. Uh, this disease was not like that. It didn't affect young people very much. It didn't affect young adults at all. And it was primarily elderly and obese patients. But, but that it took too long for us to develop that. It took too long for us to find that out. Well, I've been um, looking for a good f- fatality rate for COVID. And what I want is not the average or even what right. it was at the beginning. I wonder what it is now because I'll bet it's near zero. Yeah. And the, the initial rate, which would be, I assume, the worst when it first came out and, and when they were counting things that weren't necessarily, by the way, COVID deaths, but... Even Dr. Fauci got caught, I caught him, giving Hmm. testimony to Congress that's saying the 
fatality was 10 times worse than flu. At the same time, he'd published a scholarly article that said it was like a bad flu season. Right. So I right. Couldn't and, to answer the question as to which, which is it, Dr. Fauci? He, he went back and forth in public saying the worst thing, but in the scholarly article saying quite the opposite. No, absolutely. I, I think that uh, that saying misinformation like that is just awful. And so the the response, you know, is is terrible. We we still don't know what the like like you said what the fatality rate of COVID versus uh, influenza is. And I think that just having a very clear, simple answer: what is it in neonates? What is it in young children? What is it in uh, teenagers and, and young adults? And what is it in older people? I'd just like to know a comparison: to what, how much worse or not it was this disease than a, than a, than a, a flu? And we don't have that information. When you said minorities seem to be impacted, so we know elderly people and we know, um, what was the other category? Oh, obese people. Right, yeah. You mentioned um, minorities. Would this be an effect of minorities theoretically not being able to get as good of treatment or being, were there, are there minorities that are unhealthier as a population? And what minorities are we talking about? Uh, prim- primarily, primarily African American inner city people, and you know, they, it's, it's a it's a combination because a lot of them are overweight, and a lot of them have had poor health care for whatever reason, and so they're actually sick with a lot of underlying disease. And then you throw the COVID uh, virus in, and they just really can't handle it. Wow. Um, so moving on to the solution, when you were talking about make this right. sort of a declaration of war. I know you've put some thought into this. Can you just give some of the mechanics of how, how something like that would work? Let's say we get on the front end of another potentially emerging pandemic. What happens? Right. What kicks in? Well, I mean, uh, uh, Roosevelt went to Congress on December the 8th after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and he asked for a declaration of war which was overwhelmingly approved. There was only one congressperson that didn't vote for it. And so that kind of gave a national consensus. He's got it, he, we have our marching orders. And there has to be something that has to come as a consequence of that. And one of the main things is how can we get scientific data quickly? And also how can we do clinical trials? And I think the clinical trials part of it is something that once a a pandemic has been declared, then hospitals are organized in a method to be able to find, quickly find uh, uh, ways of improving outcome. So hospital A treats all their patients with steroids. Hospital B treats all their patients with hydroxychloroquine. Hospital C treats all their patients with ivermectin. And then you can quickly figure out whether or not the mortality rates are lower for any one of those uh, possibly uh, effective therapies. And, and so you can quickly prove or disprove. If it doesn't work, fine, we, we go on to something else. But we don't have that mechanism right now. We have to go to our institutional review board. We have to get their okay. Then we have to ask the patients to consent to be in a research trial. And I'm afraid in an emergency, that just is, it just takes too much time. So someone, would the president go to Congress or a member of Congress would bring it up and say, no, the Let's president. Have a the president. The, of war that will kick in these special things. Yes, 
Yes, the president would go to Congress and ask for a declaration of war. And then, then the Congress would have to pass it. And then if the Congress passes it, then the representatives of American people have their representatives discussed. So it is a representative democracy. You're not being ordered to do something. You agree to do it. And I think most people that are patriotic or even that are self-interested in trying to limit the damage of a pandemic would be quite quite in favor of that. And then if it lasts for a year or two, then there's, the population is going to say no more. And that can be stopped. So I, I think that in order to in order to have cohesiveness, we have to have uh, our representatives in a representative democracy tell the patients that we are willing to allow our civil rights to be abridged during this emergency. I feel like prior to the COVID pandemic, something like that, people may have trusted something like that more, but I worry now that based on the COVID experience, even the notion of having our representatives declare something or vote on something, there's just going to be a lot of mistrust among people who saw what happened last time, among their government officials. Well, I, th I think that's true. But again, I think that if you do it this way, if, if people sort of rise up and, and not revolt but say no more, no, you know, no mas, then the Congress goes and said, OK, the war is over. And then all of the constitutional rights that might have been abridged uh, are returned so that we're not in, in this unending, you know, time unlimited mechanism for restricting civil rights. I mean, they stopped everybody working. When I was I was driving into the hospital every day and when I drove in from the suburbs to downtown Detroit, it was like a ghost town. There was nobody out. I mean, the entire country was completely shut down. And that side has enormous economic, financial, health circumstances that, that really um, uh, need to be agreed upon by the public. And in the end, looking back, it seems to be, maybe I'm wrong about this, but a lot of scientific agreement, real scientific agreement, that the shutdown didn't really help mitigate things. It just created these bigger problems. Do you think the shutdown helped or was, was a good idea no. at the time? No, I don't think the shutdown. I don't think the shutdown helped at all because I think what happened is people are social beings and they go out to, you know, gather together with family and stuff like that, and the virus spreads just as easily that way. So uh, I don't think it worked at all. And in places, like Sweden really had very minimal restrictions that they didn't have any worse outcomes. So I, I think the consensus is that it didn't work. The other thing that uh, that uh, Marty McClary, I think, is talking about is um, is uh, immunity for you know the natural immunity and that whole thing was downplayed which was incorrect well that's true you know i mean and i try to do quite a bit of reporting on that because initially there was a lot of thought that the faster that could happen the better and then it's as if it went off the table and it was not discussed um, by our officials that there was a thing such as natural immunity and again the um the amish experience Yep. They they let COVID run through without doing a lot of mitigating things and vaccines and isolation. And the government or some scientists, in my view, based on my experience, set out to try to prove that they fared worse because of it. And the most they could do by jacking up the numbers as much as possible artificially was to say that no more Amish died than the regular population but they build that in the study that they released as if it were a failure, like as if all these Amish had died. But when you dig into the numbers, the worst they could make it sound was that no greater number of Amish died for having ignored the CDC recommendations. So the takeaway to that to me was, you mean they did nothing and didn't devastate their economy and stayed open and didn't devastate their schools and had no worse outcome? That's huge. 
that that's yep. never been publicized that way. No, I think the worst thing that can happen in science is 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 scientific bias. And if you're out to prove a point, you will, because you can you can sway data and information in any way that you want. And you have to have some unbiased measures of being able to look at outcomes. That that's why we do randomized trials. And that's why mm -hmm. I would I would be hoping that if we did something like a declaration of war, that we could do very uh simple randomized trials where you get one therapy or another, and then you see which is better. Uh, it's that's laborious and it costs and the cost would be borne by the government uh, so that we could really get come up with some very basic information about whether things like standing six feet apart were efficacious or not. Well, let me throw a monkey wrench into the mix of this idea again and say, let's say one hospital gives only, you know, hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir or ivermectin. Yeah. They're all testing these things. Won't the hospitals in today's environment be pressured by <clears throat> insurance slash pharmaceutical industry, whoever pressures them? Well, don't do that. You know, we, they, if they don't want hydroxychloroquine to be tested and be proven effective, won't the hospitals go along with who funds them and gives them money versus mm -hmm. the scientific community at large? No, I, th I think that uh, the doctors have goodwill and they want to try to do what's best for the patients. And that's why we go into medicine, really, to try to help people. And uh, it, the, the funding, I think, would have to come from the government in terms of a lot of people don't understand how expensive it is to do this research. Because for when you start doing a trial, you have to hire a bunch of people to go out and talk to the patients and to collect the data and follow the patients very carefully and then collate the data and then uh, get statistical analysis. And, and that costs money. And if you don't have the funding, uh, you just can't do the studies. Sure. So I think that the funding source would come from the government. And I think that the doctors would be quite willing uh, to find the science. I mean, it, it, it infects all of us. The pandemic affects us, our families, our children. And we all want what's the best. And we all want to fix, figure out what's going on and see if you can find a cure as soon as possible. Much more after a short break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Introducing Whipped Seafoam Body Butter by Sirene Cosmetics. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid. Enriched with the nourishing powers of cocoa butter, mango butter, and shea butter, our body butter whisks you away to a world of deep hydration. Experience the essence of the sea with every application as this whipped delight leaves your skin refreshed, replenished, and ready to conquer the day. Visit thelemonademermaid.com and make your skin sing with the magic of the sea. Was it true that hospitals um, got paid for the more serious patients, so the ones that were on on respirators, not to suggest anybody would do that on purpose to make money, because the thought would have been if they were taking the more serious patients, they would need some assistance. 
but it may have turned out to have been an incentive in some way. Was that, was that really happening? I could never find any no. data on that. No, no, that's, that would have been too organized and, and that wasn't happening. The hospitals were struggling to stay afloat. I think what happened is that um, there's the, so when you use, when you put a patient on a respirator, it's because their oxygen level is low and they use something called positive uh, pressure to try to force oxygen into the lungs. That wasn't the problem with COVID. The problem with COVID is that there's small little clots that were going into the lungs. And so even if you put the patient in the respirator, they really didn't improve. And, and the doctors, the pulmonologists, to their credit, figured that out relatively soon. So in the first wave of the pandemic, tons of people were on respirators. In the second wave, very few because people started using um, anticoagulant, uh, you know, blood clots, dissolvers to try to treat the patients. And there are many few patients on the respirator in the second and the third wave. Because I think they kind of learned how to treat it better, and they started turning patients over and and doing prone positioning, a bunch of things that that really then prevented them from going on respirators. And not to leave hydroxychloroquine too quickly, because I think people listening might say, well, I've heard studies say it's terrible and doesn't help, and I've heard studies say it's great and works. What are people to believe when they're getting just sort of mixed or opposite views? The, the honest answer is we don't know uh, because it, we're we're just as as ignorant as we were at the start because there was never any properly funded trials in the U.S. to show whether it worked or not. And there was no funding because the NIH wouldn't back it and, and there's no pharmaceutical company that would pay for it. I mean, I, I struggled. Uh, we, we tried to do a study here in Detroit where we're using the, the drug as a preventative. Uh, it's usually used as a preventative for malaria. So we're trying to do what's called prophylaxis. And there was never a really good study because we couldn't get funding and because then uh, hydroxychloroquine became a dirty word. I don't know where the heck that started. The drug is very safe. And it's never to be proven. It's never proven to be dangerous in COVID patients. Yet everybody thinks that that, that when we started doing the trials, um, the FDA had this emergency authorization to allow us to use the study. They rescinded it in about three months based on on fraudulent data that was published in the New England Journal. And then once the FDA rescinded the authorization, um, it was impossible to get people to even participate in a trial. Even the doctors were really worried about being in study because it was labeled as being dangerous. Well, a little bit of context, if I remember correctly, remdesivir, which was the favored drug by the government, I guess a newer drug, I think it was yeah. originally crafted for Ebola, but never FDA approved at the time. Right. Right. And the government and Dr. Fauci were acting as though that had great promise. And a lot of people had turned to hydroxychloroquine and some early studies had shown that that yep. might be good. But all of a sudden the government takes these steps that basically you know, destroyed the environment for hydroxychloroquine and put it on more equal footing with remdesivir, which is an injectable drug, I believe, given in the hospital mostly later when yep. people were pretty sick. Very expensive. Yeah, and expensive. Whereas hydroxychloroquine, cheap, could be given early or should be given early, in fact. Right. But right. they suddenly said, the government, okay, anyone who wants to take hydroxychloroquine, which could be so dangerous now, can only do it in a hospital setting which yep. ensured it would be to people late in the game when hydroxychloroquine right. probably doesn't help them. So it would make the stats look bad for hydroxychloroquine. I mean, it just seemed like an engineered environment that the government did to try to make people, you know, lean one way over the other. 
Well, I think if you kind of take back a sober look, a, a retrospect, uh, I think that lot there was a lot of failures. There, there, there was failure for us to get a, a reliable uh, test for COVID early on, and that took far too long. And there was a failure of the CDC to really send out honest data. I mean, everybody was relying on the Johns Hopkins data, and I think we know more about COVID from the Israeli experience that we ever know from the U.S. So th that's that that's my biggest concern. My number one concern about the next pandemic is, can we get timely, accurate information out to give us some sort of concept about how deadly the disease is and which populations are the most suspect and the more have the most risk. We need that right away. And the next one is not going to be COVID too. It's going to be a different virus with different natural history and, and different response. But we have to figure that out really quickly. So that sort of maybe kind of answers the takeaway. But if you had to sum up what you want people, sort of the message they should learn from all of this looking forward, what would you say that is? I think that uh, that we did a poor, we had a poor response. We were completely ill prepared for this, and we still have not gotten prepared for the next one. And I think that that's really the message. I think people really should try to, uh, you know, talk to their representatives and say, "Hey, wait a minute. What 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 is our battle plan for the next pandemic?" And we don't have one. Are other doctors of influence concerned? Do you speak to colleagues that have similar thoughts? Uh, no, Cheryl. I went back to cardiology. I'm, I'm trying to treat massive heart attacks now, and and you know that that's kind of where my my role in life is, and that's what I'm going to be concentrating on right now. And you know, we've got phenomenal infectious disease doctors that uh, that should be the ones that kind of lead this. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts. I think that's super valuable and helpful to people to hear. And I do think people should pay attention and speak up because the change doesn't seem to be coming from within the government or the public agencies or even by themselves within Congress, who, which promised an overhaul of CDC after all the problems and yet hasn't taken any steps as far as I can see to do anything like that. So thank I you. I agree. My pleasure. Thank you so much for ha having me on. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAxon.com and click on the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of fun and functional products designed specifically for independent and free thinkers like you, featuring slogans like, I tested positive for critical thinking, and I need to find some new conspiracy theories, all my old ones came true. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Ion Awards for off-narrative accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab today. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if you did, you'll leave us a great review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. And now you can support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking on the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you, such as products with the slogan, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All my old ones came true. Proceeds benefit independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.